Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the forum. Um, we're really sorry not to be in person, um, but we are really glad that we're able to go forward anyway. Today, our guest is Hope Wallensack, and Hope is known to many of you in our community already, um, so I feel a little sheepish, as always, introducing someone to you that you already know. Um, but for those who haven't met her yet, Hope is the Executive Director of the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund, uh, where she spearheads the launch, is spearheading the launching of a guaranteed income program, and you heard that right, guaranteed income, for low-income women in Georgia. And that's being started um, in the Old Fourth Ward, which is part of our parish and part of our community, where many of you live and where many of you work. So we're really excited uh, to have Hope with us today. Um, again, she is well known to many of you in the community and you know her history. Um, the part, one of the pieces I was intrigued by is that she's been a part of faith community organizing and community development and how that works together. And that's a little bit of what we'll get to talk about today. And as she has pointed out to us, her first name, Hope, tells us something, um, at least of the faith history of her parents, um, if not of her own, but we'll ask about that. Hope, welcome. Um, welcome to St. Luke's and maybe welcome again. Thank you, so great to be here today and look forward to the day when I can one day join you all in person as well. We're looking forward to that as well. And so let me start with a prayer, um, Episcopal Church. This is out of our prayer book. This is the prayer for cities. It's on page 825 in our prayer book. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, in your word, you have given us a vision of that holy city to which the nations of the world bring their glory. Behold and visit, we pray, the cities of the earth, especially our city. Renew the ties of mutual regard which form our civic life. Send us honest and able leaders. Enable us to eliminate poverty, prejudice, and oppression, that peace may prevail with righteousness and justice with order, and that men and women from different cultures and with differing talents may find with one another the fulfillment of their humanity. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 It's quite a prayer, isn't it? The function of cities yes. that we may together fulfill, find the fulfillment of our humanity. Quite profound. Yeah. Um, and I think a perfect yeah. way to start this conversation. So, Hope, um, tell us about your name and tell us about the faith story um, of your growing up. Yeah. Um, what, yeah, what a prayer. I think, um, I guess I would begin with sort of where and, where and how I grew up. I'm from New Haven, Connecticut. Um, I'm the youngest of six and really grew up in, if for those of you who maybe know a lot about Connecticut, maybe not so much, Connecticut has some of the widest wealth inequality in the country. I think sometimes uh, for African-American folks who are from Connecticut, people are like, what, Connecticut? <laughs> that doesn't quite fit, but it it is home to a lot of African-Americans, a lot of diverse communities and has some of the widest wealth gaps in the country. So grew up sort of with this juxtaposition of those who have a lot really close to Yale University, really close to those who do not have much at all, um, but were sort of the backbone of the city in New Haven and really made things run and made the city what it was. You can see where, where probably this is going in, in the relationship to the old fourth ward in Atlanta as well. Um, also the home of sort of one of the major hubs of the Black Panther Party, my high school mascot was the Panthers. Um, and so this sort of legacy of like justice and equality and really deeply thinking about um, that, you know, next to this really deep and pervasive inequality, especially particularly like just so starkly along racial lines. 
and so really grew up in the church and my sort of worldview and and view on why these issues exist and why we allow them to exist really informed by you know the stories from the bible growing up and and sort of learning and, and thinking about sort of why how we care about those who are different from us how we care about the poor how we even as as the poor if we're experiencing that ourselves advocate for ourselves and sort of what that looks like was really informed by my experiences growing up in the church and um so yes my parents named me hope one of six uh we they went they went all in on the theme with the names as well so my sisters have similar names so <laughs> but yeah i think that really is sort of the the background on and sort of where my name comes from and what's really brought me into this work is both being from New Haven, Connecticut, and then also my, um, my, the, the learnings that I've learned through my faith. And then do I understand correctly that you started out as a teacher? Is that right? Yes, I was a middle school teacher. I taught fifth and sixth grade social studies in New Orleans. It was amazing. Um, and really, when I was teaching, I thought a lot about I think I was an adult on the opposite side of, of things. And so I thought a lot about like, what gets kids excited and engaged about school and what, um, you know, and how do we not only give kids tools to have a, a better sort of education, but to have a perspective on the world and to make understanding of that in New Orleans as well, there's a theme here, the deep inequalities that they see around them. And so really was, so lucky to teach social studies where it's sort of conducive to talking about many of those, the history as to why we got here, the trends that we see in place are not just here out of nowhere, they're, and they're not just because of individual bad choices, which I think sometimes kids, when we talk about that a lot, or when there's a socialization around individual bad choices that result in inequality, kids are like, wait, but that's my parents, but that's me. And I don't know that my parents make bad choices. You know, so really being mm -hmm. able to have be a history teacher who's able to call out some of like this is the history as to how we got here here are the policies that have gotten us here was really a great experience and yeah, I miss it every day I know teaching right now is particularly difficult but yeah teaching in New Orleans was incredible your trajectory is so interesting to me because I my experience in faith communities is that we will often say um, and lots of folks will say this but faith communities will say education is the key Right? If we can educate this next generation, that's how we lift people out of poverty, it's how we create opportunity. Basically, it's how we give um, young people a chance to compete in the system that, that we all live within. Um, so I'm really interested in your trajectory from school teacher to principal to organizer, um, because I'm my guess is, and I don't wanna to be too guiding, and you can hear my own politics in this, that um, there might be a little bit more to that. Um, so can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I really sort of grew up that way and with that perspective instilled in me that sort of, if you work hard and if you just go to college and if you do all these things, sort of like this economic security and sort of like these opportunities will be certain for you. And I think a lot about my mom in that. My mom was born um, in 1953 in Nashville, Tennessee. At seven years old, she became an orphan um, and she was, she remained an orphan, was never adopted, was in and out of the foster care system. And this is in segregated Nashville, Tennessee, one of the last places Black America got um, uh, indoor plumbing and electricity. So um, I really think about her experience. She was lucky enough to, uh, a teacher, uh, 
recognized her and um, enrolled her in the ABC program, the A Better Chance program. This is one of the principal civil rights legislations under, legislation under Johnson. She gets to go to boarding school. She ends up going to college. Like this is a almost a miracle um, of his story. And so, um, you know, but yet her path was, was and continues to remain quite difficult. There at every juncture structural barriers that make it incredibly different, difficult for, for women, people of color, all, all different groups, not just those immigrants, all types of different groups to make it in, in to be successful. And so I think we sort of, the education idea oftentimes I think perpetuates the myth of sort of pull yourself up by your bootstrap and does not and oftentimes works to disguise the structural inequality that is pervasive across different inter institutions. I know that when I was teaching, you know, the idea, we would, we would often tell kids like work hard, be kind to one another. These are good values. These are certainly good values, but yes. certainly if hard work alone resulted in success, you know, enslaved peoples were, were some of the hardest working peoples. So, you know, immigrants in this country, like there are lots of different groups that are, are work incredibly hard and yet the structure isn't set up for them. And so I think obviously scholarship, education, incredibly important. And I mean that really inclusively of not just like school-based education or K to 12 based or K through college based education, but like world education is really important. And at the same time, structures have to be set up for people from from all groups to succeed. Um, and otherwise, if we don't do that, I actually think we do damage to kids telling them that sort of like hard work is principally the thing that will lead to success. Because then when broad swaths of them don't experience experience success as we've defined it or by sort of conventional standards, then we've sort of made it seem like this individual is somehow deficit when that's not the case. The system is lacking, not the individual. Yes. Yeah, thus my transition from school-based education into thinking more broadly about policy changes that can sort of affirm who people are, affirm our humanity, and sort of affirm our identities in this system that is deeply broken or functioning as it was designed to be functioning. I hope, thank you for being a part of our forum today. I, listening to you talk, I thought of a program uh, that came out of the 60s, the Head Start program. And I was in that first class of um, the funding for that and just really appreciated that um, lower income uh, help. It's part, it speaks to this, the structure or the system needs some uh, adjusting. It's not just working hard. So thank you for that. Um, I have a couple of questions I'm curious about. One is how did the Old Fourth Ward get chosen to be the neighborhood where this work is, um, where the focus is, and how is it being funded? This is also, your story is also evidence like good policy does actually make a meaningful difference in people's lives from your story to my mom's story. Like it does, it does make a meaningful difference. Like this, we can change things. It does not have to be the way that it is. So thank you for that. So the Old Fourth Ward, you, as you all probably know, I'm probably repeating things that many here already know. Um, it's the birthplace of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's where he's born, pastored Ebenezer Baptist Church and where he and Crud are, are buried today. I think for not only Atlanta, but for this entire country, this neighborhood really is the sort of an icon of economic and racial justice personified by really this one figure that we uphold 
to the highest level of what, what, what sort of racial and economic justice mean in this country. And yet in the shadow of that legacy is just blocks away, the largest concentration of Section 8 housing in the Southeast, juxtaposed to newly constructed million dollar homes. And frankly, like pretty intense gentrification. And so here is that there's sort of a particular charge to pursue justice and to sort of pursue solutions. If we can't do it in this neighborhood, then, then where can we do it? Like if we can't pursue boldly solutions that can bridge this gap that is largely across racial lines, then where else in the country you know, would this happen? And I think that it sort of starts locally. If we can do it on a small level, we can think about how to expand it out more broadly. And I think we have a legacy of being bold, of, of really unabashedly pursuing justice. And so in that legacy and in that spirit, like we should continue, we should boldly continue that work and not be shy about really, I think guaranteed income is a simple approach. And it's like, stunningly simple in its approach, but also, you know, given sort of conventional thinking on, on maybe why poverty exists is also really is maybe bold and not just guaranteed income, but any any number of other solutions that would really sort of challenge the status quo and how we honor each other's humanity and recognize each other's humanity. So that's why the old fourth ward. Um, the program will expand, the Old Fourth Ward will be the launch site, and then we're gonna expand to Southwest Georgia. There'll be a couple counties in Southwest Georgia that have yet to be announced. Um, and we're working with partners down there and really thinking about this as a statewide effort, but really with the launch of the Old Fourth Ward and sort of, this is a microcosm of what's happening across the country, the trends that we see there. So I think the program is called In Her Hands, is that correct? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I have a guess as to why um, why you're starting with a program for women, but I wanted to hear a little bit um, about about your thinking around that. Yeah, in the as again, I'm maybe repeating things that many already know. Obviously, in the last two years of his life, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was advocating for um, any number of sort of after after the passage of sort of the Voting Rights Act. Um, was mainly focused, turned towards economic justice. Sort of our, mm -hmm. our civil our civil rights are or our sort of democratic civic rights are hollow if we actually don't have economic rights. So he his famous quote, you know, the dignity of the individual will, flour will flourish when his his kind of economic security is in his hands, of course. Um, but we really believe that. Um, in addition, in addition to it being in his hands, because every individual serves sort of baseline economic security, really women are oftentimes the backbone of communities and often experience some of the most acute impacts of uh, financial insecurity. Women across the board, obviously there's a wage gap for all women across the board. For black women in Georgia, it's 63 cents on the dollar compared to white men. Black women are most likely to be stuck in poverty, um, even compare, compared to black men. Black women in Georgia are one of the groups experiencing some of the highest poverty rates, despite having the highest labor force participation rates in Georgia. And so really when the task force looked at these trends and we did not go into this knowing that guaranteed income would be the recommendation or that there would be a focus on, on women, particularly a focus on black women, but the trends in 2020 in particular, as folks well know, really amplified what was already existing in terms of racial and gender disparities, or really brought it to the fore, what many of us have known and been living for a long time in ways that I, that I hope 
if we can't do it now, when can we do it? If there is not a strong calling to do this work and to unabashedly focus on those who are experiencing the most acute impacts of economic insecurity, when will we ever get to it? And so we, when we say in her hands, that's on a couple levels, it's putting cash in the hands of women so that they have the agency to determine the choices for their future. A lack of baseline economic security actually strips choice and agency. And so, and then the second would be sort of that the that women in the community really drove the design of this program. We landed on a guaranteed income program in large part, part talking to women in the community, the $850 a month, the two year program design, many of the features of the program were told to us by women in the community. So they really drove the program, you know, um, and that so that was in their hands. And then finally, in her hands, what we mean by this is um, so many times public policy, particularly poverty policy, is top down. Those at the top, those often with the most economic security, uh, experience at telling others, telling those experiencing the issue and closest to the issue, what good solutions are. Well, we believe is that those closest to the issue should have the most power to change the most power to change it. Instead of viewing our communities as, as deficit and lacking knowledge, lacking sort of lacking knowledge and lacking insight, I view our communities as really places that have uh, really deep insight as to why these issues exist and the best solutions forward. And so this is really switching from a deficit-based approach to an asset-based approach. Our communities are rich with knowledge and resources. Um, and that we should just be working to amplify what already exists there and to probably structure, help structure some solutions around it. But those closest to the problem should have the most power on, on how they change that problem. So kind of the idea, those on the margins have the widest view of the world and we can actually learn the most from those people. We don't have much to actually teach them. So um, yeah, I think that's where the name comes from and certainly generating from a King quote and then sort of thinking about it on those three levels, not just for a guaranteed income program, but I'd argue from, for almost any public policy we should be, that seeks to remedy our deepest social social issues that we should be, we should be using this type of framework to approach those issues. I think um, what struck me is that we've also seen this um, model work uh, worldwide with, um, and um, programs aren't coming to mind, but, of when you empower women in the in a community, when you support them to um, to be the strongest that they can be, um, that that benefits the whole community. Um, uh, why am I blanking on the name of places where you go and they've um, developed and given animals to help oh, sustain growth? The what is careful project? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that oh, I give to that. Yeah, thank you. That, but that that has really contributed to the health and well-being of the entire community, not just that woman, not just that family. Um, and so that's what came to mind when you were talking about that program, the program you're running. I completely yeah. agree, and I think sort of the the international or or like global development space has embraced more of that approach than we have domestically, and I'm. Um, you know, I have some thoughts on why that would be and curious maybe 
you know, what others who've worked in both spaces, most of my work has been domestic, like why we don't embrace that more domestically, but I think it's an interesting question. And we've seen results from sort of giving assets to women to just giving direct cash to women. It has really powerful ripple effects across families and communities. So one of the statistics that stands out is that yes, black women are more likely to access payday loans than let's say white men, but that is usually after they've exhausted their network They've tried every other solution by the time they're at a payday loan, but cash shortages are across the entire community. When you've been living, when policies have not been working in the favor of people like you for generations, cash shortages, cash shortfalls are not only experienced by you, but everyone, most folks in your family unit, most, most folks in your community, it has ripple effects not only across communities, but also across generations. And so we're hoping that this can help to, will be a small part of probably multifaceted policies that help to sort of bridge that gap. And by giving it to women, it typically tends to have a, a little bit more of a direct impact on families and communities. It's been fascinating to me, and you know, Horace jumped in on this too, that um, I, I haven't thought about the direct impact of policy on so many of our lives. Um, because we don't tell our history that way, and Americans don't tell their stories that way, right? So um, I, I've known so many people whose families are who they are today because of the GI Bill. You know, and all these things were controversial in their time, right? Or that, that our elderly have some security because of Social Security, and people remember the time before. And many Episcopal churches have the letter that the Roosevelt administration sent out asking um, talking to, they were talking to churches as they were deciding how to build this because churches had policies like this. And in my family, um, my parents immigrated in 1970. Um, and they immigrated because people from Asia could immigrate all of a sudden, which is a result of the Civil Rights Act. And that was legislation that made that possible. My parents, you know, we would tell a story of, there was this opportunity to go to a college. And so we, you know, so we would see it personally as it felt very small and particular to us. And everybody had a lot of get up and go and did their part. But what happened was this nation decided people could come to this country in a very particular way. And so I say all those things to say those were all extraordinarily controversial in their own time, as was the Civil Rights Act. Um, and the idea of giving people an income is controversial in an interesting way, right? Andrew Yang made it not controversial in some ways. Right? It was kind of it's an interesting, it's an interesting piece. Um, and I can I can imagine the responses, I can even in our own community of this doesn't look like social service, which is what we're used to. Support services, um, that whole infrastructure of ways that people imagine caring for people who are poor, and I use that language very intentionally. Um, this is a really different approach. So I'd love to hear what you're hearing as um, how people are engaging this and how you think about how we, how we shift the conversation. Yeah, I think that we shift the, and thank you for sharing about your background as well, and, and I, I think that how we shift the conversation is sort of by doing. Like, I think if we, if we sort of wait for, if we wait for sort of, I, th I think that we just have to do it. Like, and I hope that's what this pilot program is doing is that we, we just have to try something and in that process be centering the community members most impacted and that we shift the conversation by sort of like changing the status quo. And so we change the status quo not only by the program itself, but by the, how it is developed from the ground up. And so um, I think that most often we sort of hear, you know, one common critique is 
you know, misuse of funds or, um, and we heard that, um, yes, we've heard, we've heard that sort of from national voices, that this idea of misuse of funds when folks to re receive direct cash, despite the fact that uh, direct cash is, is one of the most studied, it is the most studied anti-poverty anti, anti policy globally. There's over 300 studies. And by far, we know that people spend the money on basic needs for their families. And yet this myth still persists. We can continue to do studies. And I think there's a huge research and evaluation component to, to ours, but we also have to get away from these questions just that by their nature are, um, are paternalistic and racist and, and really gendered. I think we have to sort of at some point get a, get away from those questions. We've answered them over and over. And I actually think King King and the other leaders, civil rights era leaders, um, the National Welfare Rights Association, which was uh, which was also advocating for guaranteed income and largely um, largely run by Black women, who King got many of these ideas about guaranteed income from. They would probably tell us to like stop wasting our breath and just do it. Like at some point, we have to just do it. If 300 studies hasn't convinced someone, I'm not sure that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and I think they're really based in some of the most deeply held, again, like racist and, and, and sexist and sort of patriarchal tropes that exist in this country and, and so, and, and probably to some extent globally. And so, um, you know, I think what we do is we just, you know, we bring as many people along as we can and we try to think about this many different ways, but I think sort of like once you see it and once you see it in close proximity to you yes there was a really big guaranteed income program in stockton california but it's completely different i think for people in georgia to, to see a program in the old fourth ward and i think we tend to trust things that are a little bit closer to us and so we're hoping that this program will in many ways add to the literature sort of and add to like the public discussion and discourse on these questions not just guaranteed income but sort of more broadly how we approach uh how we approach economic insecurity which um which poverty, I use that as a loose term, not just to mean people below the federal poverty line, but people experience poverty or experience economic insecurity, one, well above the federal poverty line, particularly if you live in an expensive city. And then two, sort of like we go in and out of being secure, economically secure, insecure all the time. These are sort of mm. fluid things and we think about it sometimes as one or the other, but it's often not. Um, the final the final point that I make is sort of a universal basic income is a bit different from a guaranteed income. And so probably just for for the sake of defining it, guaranteed income is unconditional direct cash payments to members of a particular community. This can sort of be a really focused community or it could be more broad, let's say all folks living in the US under, 200% of the federal poverty line or whatever sort of income threshold, a universal basic income is typically uh, literally universal. It applies to all people living within, let's say, a specific geography. And so I think King and other advocates at the time, again, the National Welfare Rights Association, were advocating for a guaranteed income really intentionally to have resources be targeted to those most in need. So it's sort of an equity approach. and. Um, and King at the time thought that uh, guaranteed income would be a particularly powerful tool for those facing both the impacts of poverty and the impacts of systemic racism. And so we think about the, the compounding impact of those things and thus sort of our programs focus in particular on, on Black women 
is sort of in that legacy of there are people who are experiencing the compounding impacts and we should sort of center those people first in how we think about sort of developing solutions. So our, one of the Bible studies that this church is running right now is on the book of Ruth. And Ruth is about women who um, find themselves trying to make their own way. They've lost um, the men in their family and they've got to migrate um, a couple uh, twice in that story. And they, they end up gleaning, which is really what this reminds me of, right? That their fields and their crops and their people that have worked and their people that have invested, their people that own the land, all those factors are there. But it was part of the law of the land. This is the law of justice as, you know, a, of a just society um, is organized at that time um, that, that you don't take everything and you leave, you don't, you don't actually go back and make sure you've got every last bit of grain. That's wrong. It's unethical because there will be people that need it and you leave it for them and they just take it. And that's how it works. And that, that that's part of what a just society looks like. Um, so it's striking to me that from the beginning of, of time, in terms of our faith heritage, um, these are understood principles, and we've we've moved so far away from um, from well, uh, yeah, we've moved far away, and also there there are structures that, that make it very easy to move far away um, from thinking in that way. And so, how I'm curious about how you got some people to think about this, like who 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 got in and put the money on the table and um, mm. bought the dream? Yeah, we were currently purely privately funded. So through basically individual donations and um, a couple foundations, especially Atlanta area foundations have, have supported us, which is pretty big. Typically this work is just funded by, um, it's typically funded by just like pretty high net worth individuals. And there hasn't really been among the philanthropy nonprofit space, a move towards sort of guaranteed income or just sort of giving things, uh, giving things unconditionally in sort of, I would say, sort of the nonprofit uh, uh, or sort of the anti-poverty programming space. And so, yeah, we've been really lucky that we've had some, some large donors who've made this, made this possible. And I think um, the, the backdrop of that is not just the program, it's that we hope that this leads towards policy change. If after the two years of this program, you know, we're in a position where we're fundraising for another cohort, I wouldn't view that as success. I would view sort of, what does it look like to have, there are a couple of really specific policy proposals that I think I would put on the table, but, um, or that sort of folks in this space have been advocating for, but, um, you know, I think more broadly sort of how this project itself leads to how we rethink an economy and a society really where everyone can thrive everyone at least has baseline economic security and hopefully everyone can thrive and that that is really a, a way that we view each other's humanity each other's life the worth of our lives and so um yes it is currently privately funded um it would be great also if there were ever some public dollars that could go into this but we're not at that stage quite yet for our program when you talked about thriving it just struck me that um you know, there are so many studies that show that if you are stuck in a space of fear and anxiety, your brain just doesn't have the capacity to think beyond that specific need, that specific threat or whatever. And so for really thriving, you do need that baseline of, okay, that fear is taken away. At least I know that my family can have housing. We have food on the table. We have clothing. Um, and then you can start to think about 
who you can be and how you can um, move in a new direction and really live into who God created you to be. Sorry, going back to the priest thing. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a couple of thoughts, uh, Hope, I have. Um, one, I we hear sentiment in our society now about these efforts uh, we're moving towards socialism, even though uh, Medicare is widely <laughs> popular. And one could make that argument as well. And I find that people use this response kind of like they selectively choose parts of scripture, that they will take parts that they will look at examples and to try to make their point. Um, or they might look at, say, look at Winnie or look at Winnie or me and say, well, they're doing it. And so why can't the others? And so sometimes I'm a little reluctant to share how um, Head Start and Affirmative Action certainly made a difference in my going on to get my PhD. Uh, that was really helpful, but then I can also be used for other people who may not be on that level, they still need support. So I wondered if you've gotten some opposition around what you're trying, you said it's privately funded, so maybe not so much. And how could the church uh, play a role um, or any faith-based organization in uh, this equity initiative um, as you work work in this effort um, to, to do this funding? I think the critique I think, yeah, sort of the association with socialism is is interesting. I definitely underst understand where people get that from, but I also think sort of this version of capitalism that we have, it is hard to make an argument that it is working. <laughs> and so I think we would sort of be remiss if we didn't say that like, you know, there are probably, there are no, there are no questions or problems out there for which we don't have solutions for. So we should like, and for which we cannot come up with those solutions. And so we have to like really think about like what solutions could be and probably, I'm not necessarily necessarily advocating for one or the other. Um, I'm, I'm just saying that like, what this, the status quo is not working for broad swaths of, of people mm. in our society. Yes. So what can we do to just maybe less be caught up with sort of the labels and more be caught up with like centering people. And so what can we do to actually embody? And I think this is really, really sort of held in the old fourth ward. Like what can we do to actually like love the people around us and actually love our neighbor as ourselves? And if that means that somebody gets healthcare or somebody is able to afford clothing for their children, I don't know, I, I'm willing I feel like I'm willing to do that and to give up a little bit of what I have to do it. And I hope others would be too. And so I think I worry that the labels sometimes lead us, <laughs> pull us away from finding like solutions that again are, are about the people around us and are about our neighbor. So um, the second part of the question was. And the other was how can a faith-based organization or like our church, St. Luke's has been very involved in this kind of work. So how could we get involved in this effort? Yeah, I think that um, some of the ways to get involved are to sort of spread the that the program is happening, especially if you know people in the old fourth ward and you will have a base in the old fourth ward. We'd love to spread the word and make sure that this pro people who are in need of this program hear about this program. We're going to be in, um, investing a lot of resources to make sure that 
those most in need uh, are, are hearing about the program. We know how these things often work, that those with the most resources are most likely to hear about additional resources. Um, and so we want to make sure that the resources are, you know, this program is as targeted as possible and people at least have the, the opportunity to, to apply. We know it'll just be a couple hundred participants and it's a bit of a drop in the bucket um, compared to the enormity of the problem, but it will be one of the largest programs in the country, which we're excited about. Um, of course, if you know people who may be interested, you can also uh, like contribute to the program, of course, um, that would be at givedirectly.org backslash Georgia. Um, and then I think talking to people in your circle about this and why this work is important. And it's at a minimum, I think, important that we're asking these questions, asking questions about, huh, why is it that, you know, if you are from certain backgrounds and identities, <laughs> these outcomes, uh, despite hard work, seem almost inevitable? Um, why is it that we sort of view those who, the poorest among us who can typically stretch a dollar the furthest, that we view them as like lacking financial knowledge? That's an interesting thing when like actually folks who often have the least funds are the most financially savvy. They know the price of milk at three different grocery stores and the price of gas at, two, at five different gas stations. Like, I don't know. It seems like there are actually a lot of like rich sources of wealth and insight. And like, why do we view it as these folks don't have don't have a lot of knowledge and so like how do we talk to people in our circles about these misconceptions that exist and advocate then for sort of advocate for changes that can sort of uproot that status quo and how we how we view things um and that's not to say that again hard work doesn't make a difference i think most people would agree it makes a difference in many different situations but that maybe there's this idea that all of us deserves like base all of us deserve sort of baseline economic baseline security and reliability to provide for our yes. most needs and to ensure that our material conditions are taken care of. So um, I think those would those would be the three ways. Help us spread the word, talk to those around you to help debunk the the misconceptions that exist or at a minimum sort of like unearth question why we have these conceptions in the first place. And then of course, um, we're still fundraising. We have about uh, a million more to go to, to launch all three program sites. So um, we're fully funded right now for the Old Fourth Ward, uh, Southwest Georgia, but we're fundraising for an additional site in sort of suburban Atlanta, which will be an important part of the program as well. So those are maybe some of the three ways. And then I would love to continue to just be in conversation. I know many people at Slate have provided critical introductions to organizations. Thank you. Have been really encouraging at points where the path on this program was uncertain. And so I think that sort of encouragement and partnership, it cannot be understated how valuable it cannot be overstated how valuable it's been in this process. I personally deeply appreciate it. And I know everyone involved with the program has been. Thank you. Hope, hope um, and it's, if I understand correctly, um, at, at the, the way this program is designed is, um, is, uh, is very particular and community driven. But um, I'm wondering if there are models that you think are comparable to what you're trying to accomplish that people could read about um, or learn about um, that have run successfully somewhere else? Or do you think this is actually innovative in a way that means we should we need to wait and see, um, see what comes? Yeah, I think there's one that really comes to mind and that's Magnolia Mothers Trust run by Springboard to Opportunity in Jackson, Mississippi. And this program started in 2018. It's had three cohorts, three one-year cohorts. The program is, is just one year. 
Um, and that really, uh, Dr. Aisha Nyandoro, who runs that program, really did help to advise us on sort of how to think about a lot of this and how to build out a program. So I think her her program is pretty similar. It focuses on Black mothers. Ours is just, is Black women, and we mean that inclusively. Um, and so um, I think that that program and the results of that program are really encouraging. There's about two dozen pilots happening across the country. Um, ours is really, one, it's one of the largest, it's one of the largest in the country, it's the largest in the South, and it's also um, the largest focusing on Black women in the country, and one of the only ones focusing on Black women. And a huge thing about our, our program is that it will include rural rural areas. So again, uh, we'll have a, a, a program site in Southwest Georgia, and no other program in the country is doing that. And so I think what this speaks to a little bit is that guaranteed income has mostly been sort of an urban issue and that we think about this sort of in cities because we see this inequality so close to each other. Um, it's particularly startling, but we've almost gotten used to and normalized rural, rural poverty. It's sort of become an expected feature of rural areas. And I think we should also question why is that? Why do we think that's sort of a, an expected thing? And what does it mean to sort of broaden this conversation to areas that, again, oftentimes are the last to see, last to receive support, and oftentimes like the last people in on policy discussions? Um, rural communities are often sort of an afterthought. So, really excited that that will be a part of this program and will be be groundbreaking across the country that to have sort of this, these types of learnings in in Southwest Georgia. So. Um, there are a couple aspects of our program that are new, and then there are a couple things where we've been lucky enough to really glean from other programs across the country, principally Magnolia Mothers Trust. And then to that point, one of the I mean, one of the reasons there's not we often don't see rural programs is there's not the same kind of network of social services and you know all that kind of I mean to be say it kind of rudely kind of infrastructure around poverty right that, that cities have. So um, and I don't is this a pro does this program your program um, is it something that ties to the to other kinds? Like, is it is it the kind of program where you got to check a lot of boxes? Like, you need to, you know, do you, are there a lot of um, kind of affiliated services that people need to be signed up for, or partnerships like that? And how have you thought about that? Yeah. Short answer is no. We well, we have thought about it, but no, people don't have to check a lot of boxes. I think primarily our our program. And what we heard from community members themselves in the old fourth ward in particular is that there are a lot of additional programs. There were a lot of programs. Um, some were, you know, pretty difficult to access. Some were like moderately accessible. But that what we heard from residents themselves is that even when there were those programs, they were oftentimes given these sort of intense financial strain that folks are other that. Um, uh, that we were just talking about, that it can be very difficult to access those resources. And something that somebody, and a resource that somebody who is feeling pretty good and financially secure can access is gonna be very different from something from someone who's like thinking about how they're gonna pay their rent and put food on the table and their car has broken down. So we really hope that this program will give people just a little bit of breathing room to access, honestly, in large part, the great services that exist across, across the city, um, but, the the population we're focusing on, like from what we've heard from them, they found it very difficult in general to access services. And I think when we think about our public social safety net, it's set up in such a way where there's really, it's, it's a bureaucracy oftentimes filled with administrative errors, 
does, often does not respect people's time or humanity, often asks them to jump through hoops or can be uh, undo hoops and sort of be really invasive into people's lives. People in the community that we spoke to talked about sort of turning over their whole lives and living under high levels of surveillance to get maybe a couple hundred dollars a month in assistance. I mean, I think that there's a huge critique here on the on the status quo of what's of, of what's happening and like it people who are living in this system know it is not working period and so we we should do something to change it so we we want to make this program as accessible as possible we want to make sure that people in the program are um able to get the funds as as easily as possible we want like the highest uh we want people to participating in the program to feel like they are respected their humanity is honored we care about them not just uh, in relationship to this program, but as full as full people and humans, we're happy to direct them to other people who have really like really specialized services on, I don't know, buying a home. We hear that a lot. People just wanna buy a home, starting a business. Heard that a lot from the women going back to school and we'll be helping direct them towards partners. I think in Southwest Georgia, it's, it's different because there isn't much of an infrastructure, but I think like, isn't that our job to go to the hard places? Like, we should go to the, the in indication that there is, isn't sort of that same infrastructure uh, or it's sort of nonprofit or policy infrastructure, or I'm sorry, uh, sort of poverty, anti-poverty infrastructure organizations is an indication that those are the exact places we we should be going. That's where the work is needed most. And so even if it's a bit harder, figure out a make, way to make it work. Yeah. Amen. Well, Hope, I have this to say, you are very well named. Um, we, we are, um, we're running a, our, our forums are about thinking about, you know, what are reasonable and uh, frankly appropriate ways to think about hope in these times. Um, and I think we have to be really cautious about that. Um, it, it, these are, there's difficult times everywhere. Um, but this program is, is inspiring. I know a lot of people at St. Luke's are already very excited about it, want to know more about it. Um, we'll, we'll follow up with these links and make sure they're attached to the forum so people, the um, webcast so that people know how to um, access them. And I apologize now for all the inquiries you're gonna be getting from people from St. Luke's who are eager <laughs> to get in, because that's who we are, um, and to pray for our neighbors and to learn to love them. Um, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Really a pleasure to be here today and so grateful to even learn from many of you in this process, so thank you.